Welcome to Sales Talk for CEOs. I'm glad you're here. I'll be interviewing CEOs who have successfully scaled their B2B sales organization. In each episode, I'll start by uncovering the sales background of each CEO, dig into the strategies they use to build their sales organization, and wrap it up with what the future holds. We'll cover the good, the bad, and the ugly of scaling a sales organization. I'm your host, Alice Hyman. Here we are back for another episode, and I am excited to have Jonathan Sidhart here with me today. He is with a very interesting company called Touring. Now, that doesn't mean like touring all over the world, but in a way, it has something to do with all over the world. And what's so exciting is that Jonathan figured out that there was a need for a diverse pool of engineers from all over the world to help companies. And that that pool of engineers were not readily available to big companies in the U.S. And he's going to talk to us today about how he put this together and made it so that companies can find the best engineer no matter where they are in the world, they can find the best engineer for the job that they need. So welcome, Jonathan. Thank you, Alice, for having me. It's great to be here. I wish I'd listened to this podcast when when I was starting Turing in 2018. Right, because we do give a lot of great advice on how you can build your sales organization, which is what we're going to talk about today. But first, uh, explain a little bit more. I just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Explain a little bit more about what your company actually does today. Yeah, absolutely, Alice. I mean, Turing exists because we now live in a remote-first world. Every company today is in a race to reap the benefits of remote engineering talent. We heard uh, Airbnb recently going remote, uh, Uber, Robinhood, Twitter, Square, even traditional companies like Siemens, Ford, etc., all are in this gold rush for remote engineering talent. And the reasons are obvious. Uh, you get to tap into a planetary pool of engineers. You get to look in previously untapped geographies like LATAM, Africa, Eastern Europe, Central Europe, Asia, etc. And uh, distributed teams work now for engineering. We've all realized that in the last uh, couple of years. But remote is hard, and it's hard for three big reasons. First, it can be hard to build a large enough global pipeline to find truly great engineering talent. If you're Coinbase, one of our customers, uh, they came to us because they wanted um, to hire a ton of Golang engineers from Brazil. Like, how do you build a pipeline of uh, tens of thousands of Golang engineers in Brazil? That's hard. And second... Evaluating a global engineering talent pool can be hard. If you look at an engineer from, say, Sao Paulo in Brazil, you're not going to see Stanford Berkeley in her educational (laughs) background. You're not going to see Google, Facebook, Apple in their work experience. She could be an amazing software developer. There's just no signal in their resume. So then you'd have to interview them. And how can you evaluate and interview all these amazing developers without sucking up all of your engineering team's uh, interviewing bandwidth? So that's hard. And third, one of the hardest things, Alice, like uh, when you're managing a remote team, like uh, in your mind, like what would you think as the most as the most difficult thing with managing a distributed team? 
Well, engineers have to work together with other people and sometimes with many other people, some who don't understand engineering very well. Yes. <laughs> and so I would I would imagine that it would be that communication between all of those people who are working on the same project. You're exactly right. Communication, right? Like communication is hard because time zones are hard. Often the right kind of daily communication, weekly communication, productivity tracking doesn't happen. Yeah. And if you're a company like Johnson & Johnson, again, a Turing customer, it can be hard. You, might, you, you would care about security, right? Like that is, that is also hard. So building a global pipeline is hard. Evaluating a giant pool of engineers automatically is hard. And ongoing management of that remote engineering team is hard. And you have to solve for communication, security, et cetera. So we asked ourselves a simple question, can we solve all of this with software? Like, what if we had software that could source engineers planet-wide? What if we had software that could automatically evaluate software developers for a Silicon Valley bar? And what if we had software that could use uh, machine learning to match the right developers to the right jobs? And what if we had software that could manage the collaboration after the match? Software, 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 software. This is why we built Turing. And Turing's creating a new category. We call this category Talent Cloud. It's a distributed team of developers in the cloud that's sourced by software, vetted by software, matched by software, and managed by software. So if you're a hiring manager or a VP of engineering or a CTO, and you needed engineers fast, you can come to Turing to push a button and spin up your engineering dream team in the cloud as easily as you'd spin up servers on Amazon. So that's what we did. Wow. And this is something that could spread really to any hiring, like it would work for any type of talent, not just engineers. So I see that this could be really big, but let's for a minute before we go there, take you all the way back to 2018 before you started this company, Jonathan, what were you doing? What kind of work were you doing? And then how did it happen that you just got this idea? And probably this idea wasn't as big as it is now today. So what was it like when it started? Um, and just kind of give us the story of the beginning. Yeah. Thank you, Alice. And let's uh, while we are on this time machine, let's set the date maybe to 2012. Okay. Uh, so 2012, the year was 2012, and I was running my first startup. Uh, which was uh, a machine learning-based content recommendation company that I started uh, while I was at grad school at Stanford. And I remember the year 2012 very distinctly because I thought my startup was going to fail, right? And we had a lot of users on the web. We had about 40 million users on the web. Um, And and this is the company that predated Turing. This was, I'm a, uh, Turing was my second company. This was my first company. And so we had 40 million users on the web and I was looking to raise our series A and I was turned down by almost every investor on Sandville. I remember driving up and down. And the reason was the world had shifted to mobile. Like everyone wanted to see mobile app metrics and we didn't have any, we didn't even have a mobile app. And I remember at that time, okay, we got to hire iOS Android developers fast. And if we don't do that, the company is probably going to die. Wow. And it was a sobering moment to to me, like in my confidence as a brash young founder, I hadn't really contemplated I could fail until that until that <laughs> point. And uh, it was a it was a moment for me. And I remember at the time, like l- trying to hire these amazing iOS Android developers. They were all working at Google, Facebook, uh, Apple, etc. 
it was really hard to hire them in Silicon Valley. They didn't want to leave their yeah. high-paying jobs at these right. companies to, to join a startup at the time. And I remember sitting in my car, like one of those nights, and just thinking, okay, what do we have to do differently? Like hiring in Silicon Valley is not working, like just at least limiting it to just Silicon Valley. Um, and I remember uh, discussing this with my co-founder, uh, Vijay, and we decided that, you know, if we don't change the game, the company's going to die. So we made the decision to look beyond Silicon Valley uh, in places where nobody was looking, which at that time were um, uh, Ukraine, Serbia, parts of parts of China, uh, parts of uh, Poland, where there were some great engineers. Uh, I was fortunate to uh, work with some incredible engineers from Ukraine, Poland, Serbia, China, etc. They joined. They joined the company, um, and we launched V1 of our iPhone app. Uh, Apple, it won awards with Apple for best apps for content recommendations. Uh, Apple invited us to their Cupertino campus. Um, the uh, I shared the app with some of the Series A investors that I was looking to meet with. We raised our we raised our Series A, and and the and the company had a successful acquisition uh, a few years later. And it all happened because of the decision to look beyond Silicon Valley and broader talent pool. And after selling uh, that company, I took some time off in uh, 2017 to recharge. It was a long journey, like my first startup <laughs> took about nine years. And I took some time to recharge and I and I wasn't even like sure if I wanted, should I start another company? Should I <laughs> should I become a VC? Like I was contemplating all, all options. And at the time, and after a few months of, of uh, soul searching, I, I decided, I, I again got like excited about company building again, learning all the lessons from, from my first company. And I was invited to be an EIR at Foundation Capital, one of the top uh, venture capital firms in Palo Alto. They backed Uber, Netflix, et cetera. And I teamed up with my co-founder again. And um, we decided like a big, like what we had solved at uh, at my first company, like that was a big enough problem that every tech company is going to face. Yeah. And I remember in 2018, some VCs and others were not really as big on remote work. Like they would wonder, hey, you know, if you're building a product, doesn't everybody have to be in the same room? Like that was the sort of thinking people had. I think COVID then completely shifted people's uh, perspective on, on the fact that for software engineering teams, I think remote work should be the default. You should meet, you should meet your teammates, meet as needed. But remote work, I think, is a great default um, and uh, we just the company just took off uh, in the last couple of years, and I've been fortunate to work with an incredible team of uh, people that come from um, Facebook, Google, Apple, Microsoft, etc. to build to build this company. Uh, so it's been an exciting exciting journey. Most recently, Turing um, uh, raised around at a four billion valuation cap. So the company's just been on this amazing growth trajectory, and we are fortunate to be riding the tailwinds around remote work and the tech industry itself. Yeah, and you're just doing this for engineers right now. And I don't know if you have any designs to go further than that and apply this to other positions. But as you said, you're building a new category because it's not yeah. just about finding the talent. It's about being able to, to say for sure that this person can do this type of work and also that um, we can manage 
project remotely as well. So, and provide the security. So I think all of those things are are so important. Now, back in 2018 and up until, you know, um, COVID in 2020, you said, you know, it was going along, right? But it really sped things up, of course, uh, when everybody went remote because they were forced to. But tell me, when you first started, who was doing the selling for your company and how did that work? So when we first started, uh, I I did I was very closely involved in in the sales uh, mm-hmm. in the sales process. Uh, I remember like in uh, twenty in late twenty eighteen or so when we wanted, I set a goal for the company of uh, getting five customers in in one month. It was December, and um, it was um, it, uh, so it was it was me with our head of engineering and and a couple of others. Uh, the, so I would be on customer calls to uh, to book to because in the early days, like you kind of have to um, a lot of the customers who come to you are are there because they uh, it, it's a founder relationship that, that you have exactly right. You have relationships; they might know you from your previous work that you've done, or just being around Silicon Valley, or from people who used to work with you, right? And of course, yeah. you know, founder-led sales is the way that most yeah. of us begin something new, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, and I remember like those those early those early sales calls, and they're super valuable. And I still still do them uh, do them today uh, for bigger for our bigger customers. Um, I, I remember like at the time I just started um, uh, dating uh, uh, Emily, who, who's now my wife. And I remember, like, we had like our first trip away together, like in 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 December that year. I think we were in San Diego at the time, and I would sneak away from our from our from date night on Saturday to go do do a sales call with with my head of engineering to to onboard some of these early customers. And those early customers, they're taking a bet on you, what you've done before, not necessarily what the product looks like today. And I'm super grateful for all of those customers for. Um, their feedback, their trust um, that helped Turing get to where we are today. Yeah, isn't that amazing when you think of those and all of the founders that I talk to and work with that are, you know, now much more mature companies, they fondly remember, you know, their first few customers, right? Because they were so important and many times they're still friends, which I just love. So, um, all right, so 2018, 2019, you can't do all the selling yourself and run a company. We all are very familiar with that dilemma as CEOs. So how did you decide when and how did you decide to really start building a sales team so that you could start to scale your sales? I mean, it, it, uh, it was very practical. Like I didn't have the time to do all of the meetings anymore. Like the, and for, for a while, like I was spending maybe you know, when you're the CEO, like that, you have a lot of responsibilities beyond just selling. Like I'm also closely involved in product, technology, other other par- other parts of the business. The so I, there was a, it, I I quickly realized twenty percent of of my time is not enough to push to push the to push the sales uh, engine forward. So it was both constraints on my time, and second, it was very clear. I I, I don't know when to pinpoint this, but probably by mid. 2019, it was clear that we had product market fit. It, it was kind of clear and it, the playbook was getting more solidified. And I felt com- 
confident that we can replicate this. We can have, we don't need somebody to come and discover the playbook. I think that's a mistake that, uh, I think a good time to hire a head of sales is when you have a playbook in place. Yes. Uh, even if it's a little bit rough around the edges. Yes. So we reached that stage, I would say, where we had a playbook that worked. We knew how to talk to customers. We knew what the common objections mm-hmm. were and how to handle it. And um, it, um, I, I, I think that was the time. And when I looked at it with the benefit of hindsight, I wished I'd actually hired our GTM head even sooner. Uh, pro- I might have waited a couple of months uh, too late, um, but but it it was it was noticing that we had product market fit, and when you have product market fit, um, it feels different. Where it's much more of a the market pulling what you have rather than you pushing what you have. Yes. Into the I used to think my first startup had product market fit, but after building Turing, I've decided my first startup <laughs> probably didn't have product market fit because it was a lot of work to oh to sell. Like it's just easy. That's amazing and wonderful to hear. And I think that sometimes when we say product market fit, we don't really understand what that means, right? As founders and as early startups. But not only then, sometimes when we're, you know, more mature and in our 20 years, you know, our product market fit, you know, things have changed and it's not as solid as it used to be. And so for me, I think that something CEOs need to continue to look at is what is our product market fit? Especially now with, you know, three years of the pandemic, um, before your product market fit might've been one thing. And now when you look at it, it's like, why are we struggling with sales? Check your product market fit. You may need to make some changes there. But I like what you said also about having a playbook. And this is why I think it's so important for founders to do the sales work in the beginning. And it's funny because, you know, I don't work with startups very much. I mean, I mentor some, but it's not my core business. My core business is more mature companies. They're usually at least 10 years old and usually, you know, at least 10 million in sales. Some are a little smaller than that, but... Um, you know, that's kind of where my sweet spot is. But I talked to a lot of earlier stage um, CEOs and they call me because they want to hire a salesperson, right? And I tell them, I really don't think it's a good idea. I think you need to do the selling until you're sure the product market fit is right. Yeah, You've written down what you can about how you do what you do, because a lot of times, CEOs hire salespeople without any playbook and everything about sales is in the CEO's head and they don't have time to teach that salesperson everything that's in their head. So really important what you said about writing it down, right? And if if you're not good at writing it down, then hire an assistant or somebody who you can just talk it to and, or they can listen to the sales calls and they can write down what you do, right? What works and what doesn't, right? So that you have good product market fit you have a great playbook. And like you said, you know how to talk to your customers because you've been doing it. So you can share that. And I think those three things are really critical. And you said you hit a point where that's where you were. Now, you also mentioned maybe you wish you had done it just a little bit earlier, but boy, I'll, I'll tell you what, sometimes I've seen it happen earlier and it just doesn't work. And we have a lot of failures. And then the CEO ends up doing all the selling anyway. And it's a huge frustration because you're spending money on people who can't do what you need them to do, 
So, all right. So you, you got there. And so what did you do when you got to this point? You said you found someone to lead your GTM. Tell us about how that worked. Yeah, I, I found, um, I found my head of sales and, uh, he's, uh, he's incredible. Like he, he, uh, his name is Prakash. Uh, he comes from, uh, the global IT services company, uh, Capgemini, where, we, where he was a VP and hiring him was a sales process in itself. It took me about a year to hire him. <laughs> it was an enterprise grade uh, sales cycle because he'd been in, you know, Capgemini is like a, $40, $50 billion company, I think, like in that scale. And he'd been there for 19 years. And for him, it was a bet to join me to 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 do this at this time when and build this out. And he's been amazing. Um it um so so, so that took a while. And uh, after he joined, we started thinking about building the GTM machine. And we were very clear about who we wanted to hire first. Like firstly, like we, we thought about our uh, customer segments mm. and very simply, very simply, we thought two segments, let's, let's call them enterprise and startups. Sure. And then we thought about who are the right type of early account executives that we want to hire. And we looked for people who had some domain experience in the industry so that mm-hmm. we don't have to teach them everything from scratch. Mm-hmm. We look for people who can be good with uncertainty, yes, and who good with ambiguity and good at giving feedback to the product and to the company to make the product better. Yes, different from like other very mature companies, right? In a very mature company, that a salesperson probably doesn't have as much input into the product. Here, we wanted every salesperson to continuously improve during the product and during the company. So we looked for people who can make these other functions better. And we were fortunate to work, to find three, three, three incredible um, uh, sales leaders at the time. Two of them are still with the company now. And, um, and, and I feel like there, uh, that, so that, that, w- that was an important step when it, um, like an, like a salesperson can sell Turing without my head of GTM being present and without me being present. And what was incredible is all of these sales leaders, they ended up making their first sale in their first month. Wow. Yeah, which was, again, a testament to the fact that, A, we had product market fit, and B, the playbook was relatively mature, and C, these were people who'd been there, done that, and yes. done that in somewhat similar realm. So it just helped us. Then then when this started working, it was like, okay, let's, let's think through the economics uh, of this uh, you want to think about things like LTV over CAC. You want to think about you want to you want to th- think about sort of um, the revenue generated by a salesperson and uh, think through good compensation structures, stuff like that. Well, now you've just made everyone jealous. All the CEOs who have not been able to, you know, hire great salespeople, right? They're going, "How did you do it?" And they did a sale in their first month. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really interesting. Let's dig into that a little bit. Was there pipeline built? How did that happen? Because that is so rare to have sales in the very first month that a salesperson starts. Correct. So uh, at Turing, like we have a really good growth function that that my my co-founder runs, who heads data science. So that team was really good in those. Uh, and let's go back to like 2019 or so. Yeah. So we had an engine that was feeding a lot of leads. 
um, and um, on, on the demand side. And then we had this really uh, high performance GTM function that my head of data, uh, head of GTM was building. And it was pu- putting those two together. Um, and the leads come from a wide variety of uh, channels. So we, we have an inside sales uh, function. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, we've also been investing heavily in product automation. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, my head of product, Deepak, uh, comes from Google, Facebook, Lyft, et cetera. Uh, and he's uh, focused on building a self-serve experience um, where Very customers good. can come and choose the developers that they want to work with. And ideally, they reach out to a salesperson when they're not able to find, when they have some questions or they, when there is some nuance needed. Uh, so, so, so that product-led growth was also something that made our sales team super efficient. Yeah, yeah. Having all of those things in place is so important. And I really think that today the big mistake that more mature companies are making is they have their salespeople out prospecting cold. They're not yeah. doing demand gen. They're not delivering qualified leads to salespeople <clears throat> so salespeople can do what they're good at, which is have sales conversations, right? Yes. When salespeople are forced to send out a lot of emails, make a lot of cold calls, send out a lot of cold LinkedIn messages, they're not having conversations. They're not, we're not using their skills at their highest and best, right? So what you mentioned about having all those things ready before you plug salespeople in, the product-led growth, if that works, it doesn't work for every company, but, you know, for some and having that inbound machine going, right, so that people come and look for you is really important. That's exactly right. I mean, for us, like having that high-functioning demand gen machine, uh, which our growth team runs, they, they do a great job. Uh, like that was really key to setting up our GTM teams for success. Uh, and then our product efforts to uh, essentially make our sales process more efficient to make yeah. sure um, we don't nothing falls through the cracks and we have a really short sales cycle. Um, that those were all those were all helpful and we have a sales cycle of like a couple of weeks for our startup customers and a couple of months for our enterprise customers and a lot of our product automation it plays a big role uh, big role in that. We we want to ideally make it instant like push a button spin up your engineering dream team. <laughs> as easily as spinning up servers on Amazon. Um, I think we are, we, are, we are not there yet, but that's what we're working on. Like I we, love it. I love it. I love it. So what what is your customer journey? I mean, how do people find you? We know that they're sitting there going, hey, we need an engineer for this project. So we know we they start there. They have an aha. We need somebody left or we're building, starting a new project. So we need an engineer. We know that. Then what happens next in your customer's journey? So then what happens is, um, so we, we qualify the customers like for, to make sure that uh, they are serious, like it's not, it's not some spam thing or it's not, <laughs> uh, it's not, uh, we also tend to qualify out really small companies. I mean, we, I, I mean, I personally would love to like help every company we can, but it's just not very efficient for us to help like the companies that are, that have raised less than 2 million in funding. Like that's kind of where we draw the line. Yeah, um, and we go up all the way to Disney, Johnson and Johnson, Rivian, Coinbase, etc. Um, so, so we kind of have to qualify them, and after that, we invite them to come browse our self-serve system 
think of that like an Amazon.com-like experience, like very personalized yeah. shopping where you come in, you can tell us, would you like to hire an engineer or would you like to build an engineering team? And if you'd like to hire an engineer, like the customer might tell us, you know, I need a full stack developer. And then we would ask them, okay, if it's a full stack developer, the product would ask them, uh, what front end framework do you need? What back end framework do you need? Okay, maybe React for front end, Node for back end. And I would like them to know PostgreSQL for the database uh, technology. And, you know, it would be nice to have this person knew Python and we need some overlap with Pacific uh, time zone, say. Um, and then our system shows them pre-vetted um, developer profiles. We call them deep developer profiles. These are detailed, comprehensive, continuously updating vector representations of a developer's strengths and areas for improvement. And the customers can actually see the result of Turing's vetting. They can actually see how Turing evaluated their proficiency in React, their proficiency in Node, their ability to write code. And we actually put our engineers through a very rigorous coding assessment test, and they can actually see, and we record that. So you can actually see them write code on the screen, and you can see how this person thinks. Um, we also evaluate our developers for soft skills, communication skills, so they can see the result of the vetting. If they love what they see, they could say, okay, I'd like to start a trial. And when you start a trial, we give you a zero risk two week trial period, where for two weeks, work with this developer, and if you feel like this developer is integrating well with your team and they're everything that you that you dreamed of, then you then you keep working together. Um, but if if it didn't work out for some reason, you can stop. And when you stop, you pay zero, and we still pay the developer. So there's zero risk for you, uh, which again um, makes customers feel really really comfortable. So they push a few buttons, and then and some some of our customers would want to do like one interview with the with the developer, so they do that, uh, and then then they get started. Wow. So you've really made this very do-it-yourself. So where do the salespeople come in? And what does your sales team look like now today? Yeah. So uh, so as a, so we have these two segments, right? Like we have these startup customers and these enterprise customers. The, the flow that I described is much more for the startup customers. Okay. For, for, for enterprise customers, we do have uh, like one, usually we have like a couple of calls with them to uh, to talk to them to understand their strategic needs. And then we give them access to the self-serve system for them to grow. Okay, so Jonathan, is that outbound or inbound? So these big companies, these Fortune 500 companies, do they find you and talk to a salesperson or do your sales people call them and then it starts? So our marketing team um, uh, generates these leads and does some basic qualification. And then our sales team uh, starts that first meeting where they do more of a discovery call to understand uh, to understand the opportunity, understand exactly what they need. Um, so the leads are coming in through marketing and then the sales team is responsible for closing that lead. And then we call it, we, we call it hunting and farming. So they have to close that new customer and then for many of our customers, like we have ample opportunity to grow and expand. Oh, yeah. So that the sales team does. So the sales team does account expansion and closing the initial deal. The marketing team generates uh, those deals for the for the customer. Every salesperson's dream. <laughs> have, like I said earlier, qualified yep. leads where they can actually have a sales conversation. So that's wonderful. So how many salespeople do you have on your team doing this? 
So today our sales team is about, um, if you look at our sales org, it's about 150 people. Wow. Um, yeah. And, and it's not it's not all salespeople. Like there are sales operations. Of there course. are uh, There are uh, sales enablement teams. We have some account-based marketing teams also in the GTM nice. org. Uh, but the sales teams largely get split into, into, into our startup and enterprise segments. Okay. Very good. Do you, so then for your do-it-yourself, more st- of the startups... I kind of peeked at your website, but there's a lot of information and they can actually talk to someone on the chat, right? Yes. Yes. They can speak, they can, they can speak with uh, people on chat. Um, our sales team also, um, like our sales team is very good at being very close to our customers. Like they, like many of our sales team members become best friends with the engineering managers of the companies that they support because we are, I imagine for many of them, uh, there's the equivalent of uh, the bat phone. If you've seen the 19th, <laughs> right. the red phone that they, hey, this product is uh, delayed. Like we, we, it looks like we're gonna hit, not hit our deadline. They they pick up that red phone and and push that button and Turing Turing uh, parachutes some amazing developers in to help them. Yeah! Wow! So exciting. So you have grown tremendously um, without sharing any deep, dark secrets. You did mention that you got some funding, but what percent of growth have you seen? I know it was kind of slow before COVID, but what's that growth been like? Yeah, yeah. I mean, surprisingly, uh, Alice, like uh, even our growth before COVID was pretty fast, except that it was on a smaller base, but it's Mm -hmm. easier to grow. Like what's been like if you look at our chart, actually, you wouldn't be able to tell there was COVID. Like it's just it's just a it's just a amazing growth growth curve that that we have. We grew four x last year, um, and uh, it's it's just been it's it's uh, it's been crazy. Like the, it's been crazy dealing dealing with the growth. And I think like when you deal with hyper growth, like some systems break, and you have to like rapidly re-engineer the pieces that break. Yeah. Yeah, and you kind of have to embrace the chaos a little bit, and and the uh, that's that's kind of how we are. And the amazing thing is, like, because we are in such a giant market, right? Yeah. In a world that's powered by technology, the fundamental scaling constraint is great engineering talent. So we are like, it's like the as software eats the world, like Turing's just has has this rising tide of just lifting. Um, lifting up our entire industry. So we've been fortunate to ride the tailwinds around the growth in the tech industry itself. The world is producing a lot more software engineers because there's a lot of demand for software engineers and the tailwinds around remote work. Like those dual those dual tailwinds like have just really propelled the company forward. And what challenges does that bring to your sales team, if any? Like what kind of to keep up with the demand Um are you able to hire enough salespeople? You know, what are some of the challenges around sales with all this really rapid growth? Uh, I think the challenges are uh, to do with um, um, hiring salespeople quickly enough, ramping up salespeople quickly enough, having good processes for onboarding and training our salespeople. Um, and um, we also have a big product component at Turin, right? Like, and our product is continuously improving. And for some of our sales team members, like it can be, it's a little different because you're selling a fast moving product in a Mm -hmm. sense, like which is continuously iterating and and getting better. So we have to keep them up to date with 
how the product is changing, improving, so they are communicating with our customers uh, in the best possible way. And, you know, like our product, like it, it, it uses a lot of machine learning to improve our vetting, to improve our matching. And um, as we keep making changes, like sometimes there are product stability issues, like sometimes the uh, sometimes there are times when uh, a feature stops working or, or something breaks and the team fixes that. And for the for the sales team, like they kind of uh, they have to sort of understand the trade off between moving fast, improving the product, and while also keeping it keeping it stable enough. I would say it's a it's a learning phase for both our product teams and our sales teams to sort of uh, work work well with those under those constraints. Where on one side you want to keep improving the product and keep getting better, on the other side, we, certain product areas have to be completely rock solid where the move fast and break things culture like doesn't doesn't apply in every product area so we we it's a, it's a learning learning phase uh, for us in in both of those functions yeah and to keep the salespeople from panicking right yes yes <laughs> because we're moving so fast and things do break and that's very yes. normal but you know they don't want any upset customers and they don't want yes. to have to explain well it kind of works you know yes <laughs> Yes, and so we have to just keep those salespeople from panicking, and they have to understand this fast-paced, you know, ever-changing kind of world that you live in. So, yes, um, very exciting. So, what's next? You mentioned that you just uh, raised some money and have a great valuation. Yeah. What's coming next, Jonathan? Uh, yeah, Alice. Like most recently, Turing raised at a four billion valuation cap, and. We're just continuing to grow. We grew 4X. So exciting. We really need to just applaud that. Yeah, thank you. And we have like about one and a half million software developers on the platform now, and that's continuing to grow. One and a half million. Yes. And we grow by about 100,000 developers every month. And how do you think they're finding you this fast growth? They just get Google and find you? So uh, there is a, I mean, I think the value proposition for Turing is just so strong uh, they love developers love the ability to work in Silicon Valley without having to live in Silicon Valley. Well, they probably tell each other about it, right? They're all telling yes. each other. Yeah. Yes. And I think the it's like for us, like what really gets us excited is we um, we are unleashing the world's untapped human potential. I believe there's great people in different parts of America, different parts of the world that don't all have access to the same opportunities that people in Silicon Valley or New York would have, right? So we wanna level the playing field for people. We wanna have amazing people, um, like have people's um, career be driven by their talent and their ambition and their hard work, not by the zip code that they were born in, right? So we wanna kill the geo lottery, equal opportunity for people from different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. that's That's been really great. In terms of what's next, uh, we are launching our Teams product. So in the first stage, Turing was primarily about engineers on demand. Now it's engineering teams on demand. So if any of any of your um, any of those listening to the podcast, if you are looking for an amazing software engineering team that's vetted for a Silicon Valley bar, um, you should you should check out Turing.com. Um, so so that's a, that's a big focus for us. Uh, as companies deal with this macroeconomic uncertainty, I think uh, companies are also going to look at uh, a remote-first team as a way to also 
ha- keep costs down whilst not compromising on quality, right? It's much easier to find great talent in Utah or 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 Kansas uh, than than the Bay Area or or other parts of of or or Brazil or Argentina or, or places like that. So I think like when you when you cast a, a wider net, you you build a diverse team, you build a higher quality team, um, and it also tends to be very uh, very efficient. Wow. I, I, you know, I've got so many ideas going through my head uh, because this is, it, it really is something that fits perfectly into the market where we are today. What you've built and what you continue to build and grow really fits the need. And with everybody wanting to work from home and and kind of be their own boss in a way, you know, right? Yeah. And choose the jobs that they want. This yeah. gives millions of people the yeah. opportunity to do what they love to do in engineering and yeah. to do it for the type of company they want to do it for yeah. on that side. And on the other side, like you said, it allows these companies who need really good engineers to get the very best engineers. So it's yeah. it's just the best of both worlds. And um, I cannot wait to continue watching your company grow and see what you do next, because it's going to be spectacular, obviously, because everything you've done so far has been. And like you said, really opening this new category. So I guess my last thing for you before we leave is just, you know, you've done two startups now. This one's highly successful, what words of advice would you give to the CEOs listening who are trying to do what you're doing, where they really have built demand, they really have that great product market fit, and their companies are growing exponentially rather than incrementally? What would you tell them? Yeah, like, um, uh, so for me, like my first startup was just such a phenomenal learning experience. And I feel like I made almost every first-time founder mistake that you could. And fortunately, the mistakes did not kill me or kill the company. <laughs> so I was able to learn from that and keep, like, you know, it, it's sort yeah. of like, you know, like the, like the pioneer sort of arrows in your back and you, and you, and you, and you move forward. Um, some of my main lessons were, uh, number one, spend a lot of time picking the right market. Uh, before starting to build a company, um, the right markets have the right physics that just help you grow very easily. And the wrong markets are just really hard. Doesn't matter how smart you are or how hard you work, it's just really hard. And too often I see like talented people stuck in a small market, building a product that very few people want or or maybe not, not enough people want. And I've made that mistake before, and I would just caution people to spend time picking the right problem to solve that has a big enough market, a big enough need. Uh, the second uh, piece of feedback is it's all about hiring great people. Like I was fortunate to have a great co-founder, Vijay, and then an early exec team, like an, an exec team today that's amazing. I have an amazing head of product, uh, Deepak, amazing head of uh, GTM, uh, Prakash, uh, amazing head of engineering, uh, Zan, um, amazing heads of heads of uh, operations, uh, Neeraj, Natalia, people, uh, finance, 
chief of staff team, just just a great exec team. So surround yourself with great people. I think that would be my second uh, second uh, second piece of advice. Uh, and the third is um, uh, in my first company, like I would, um, I, I was what I would describe a single threaded CEO where I would uh, focus on on product. And at some point I'd realize, you know, we have 12 months of runway, we should go fundraise now and I would go fundraise. And at that time, if I'm not happy with the valuation, I'd think about strategic conversations to have and do that kind of sequentially. Today, I do all of it in parallel. Like I spend 85% 85, uh, of my time on in building the company. I spend about, um, let's say, a, let's say a, a 85% of my time building the company 10% of my time, like I'm I'm speaking with world-class investors, uh, both who are already a part of Turing and those who I might want to partner with in the future. And then 5% of my time, I'm speaking with the kind of uh, people who could be good strategic partners for us to grow even faster. And doing that just makes, uh, and having a clear plan for that and being prepared for that helps you create the future that you want to find yourself in versus reacting to something that you find yourself in. Uh, so it's like having, like looking like 12 months ahead, like I have a vision for where I want Turing to be 12 months from now. And the work that I'm doing today is to put Turing exactly into that, into that, into that future. Uh, so I would say those are, those are some of the three things that come to mind. Thank you for that advice. I'm sure all of our listeners um, will take that and think about it in terms of their own business. And thank you so much, Jonathan, for being here with me today on Sales Talk for CEOs. Um, I'm so excited about touring and what you're doing. And listen, if you need an engineer, anybody, now you know where you can go to get the best. So um, thanks again, Jonathan. And I will, I'm sure that our paths will cross again soon. That sounds great, Alice. And before you go, I had a question for you. Absolutely. Like- so I, I love reading books and I read, I read a, like one of my, one of my, um, I, I care a lot about continuous improvement. I work on making myself better every day, every week. Uh, what would your recommend, recommendation be for any great books for people who want to learn more about sales, like for, uh, for CEOs uh, to learn more about sales? What, what would your recommendation be? Oh, gosh. Uh, an interesting book uh, behind you. So, you so many good ones. Yes. And I was just going to say, so my good friend, Stu Heineke, um, just wrote uh, this book. It just released. And as you can see, it's How to Grow Your Business Like a Weed. Now, he has another great book that I think every CEO should read called How to Get a Meeting with Anyone. And it is an excellent book on sales, really. Because, you know, this is what salespeople want. They want to have meetings. And now your team is mostly inbound, but anybody who's doing outbound should read how to get a meeting with any with anyone. But this is for CEOs, really, to um, understand more about how they can grow their business. And as we know, weeds take hold and they're hard to get rid of. Yes. <laughs> so um, it's a good analogy. Um, another book that I love, I mean, you can see I've got such a great stack here. But we need to tell our story better, whether it's inbound or outbound, we always need to tell our story better. And so I love this book by my friend Park Howell, who talks about how to tell the story. And this is a great one for the salespeople. 
Yeah. Um, they learn how to tell the story better and for marketing to help sales tell the story better. So I would love for all sales and marketing people and CEOs to read this book. And then I've got another one here that I think, I mean, there's so many we could go on and on, right? I should do a podcast just on books. In fact, maybe I will do that. Indistractable. Today, you know, working from home, we have more distractions than ever. And so I love um, this book because it really helps you think about what's distracting you. And what was most interesting for me in this book was understanding, you know, we all want to focus, right? And so we always think, oh, you know, if I could just focus better, right? But why don't I focus? What's the opposite of focus? Distraction, right? I'm distracted. But if you think of it this way, instead of thinking, I need to focus because I'm distracted, think of the opposite of focus is traction. Because even when I, you know, focus on something, that doesn't mean I'm moving it forward. It just means I'm giving it my attention. And what we need in order to be indistractable, right, is we need traction. And that traction It's like, what's the next step I need to take to move this forward? So when I get scattered and unfocused, it's not focus that I need, it's traction that I need. So I really enjoyed reading that. So yeah, those are a few of the books. And if you look at my blog, for everyone listening, I often do like a list of podcasts or a list of books that you should read. Um, So that's a great place to get that information from. But thank you for asking that. I really appreciate it because as you can see, I'm a book lover as well and constantly learning as we all should be. That's great, Alice. So how to grow your business like a weed, how to get a meeting with anyone and the narrative. Indistractable and the the narrative. um, Whoops, where did I put it? The narrative gym. Yep. Yes. So those are some good ones, and I'll put those in the show notes for everyone. And again, Jonathan, thank you so much. Likewise. Uh, Pleasure being here. Thank you, Alice. Thanks for tuning in to Sales Talk for CEOs. You can find me at alicehyman.com. Be sure and connect with me on LinkedIn, and let me know that you heard the show. If you found value in today's episode, please subscribe, write a review, and share the show with another CEO.